For many of us, it is the most important commitment to take care of our loved ones. We need, we feed as the Beatles song goes, and we work hard to ensure that those close to us are thriving. Today, there are 53 million people taking care of their parents, neighbors, and friends. And there are 53 million stories. From the Stanford Center on Longevity, this is When I'm 64, the podcast for caregivers. I'm your host, Ken Stern. There's a new president in office, and with him comes a new plan for infrastructure. But President Joe Biden has expanded the definition of infrastructure to include not just roads and bridges, but also social infrastructure and for greater support for the caregivers who hold up our society. Over the years, caregivers and activists have advocated for better resources and support, with some wins along the way. But now caregiving is part of the national conversation on a new scale. Still, it's unclear whether or not our representatives can come to an agreement on the plan. We have three perspectives on what the future of care infrastructure could hold. Eight years ago, at age 27, Aisha Adkins became a caregiver to her mother, who was diagnosed with dementia. And she's also become a caregiver to her father, who recently suffered a stroke. Aisha is also an activist, working with Caring Across Generations, an organization working to bring caregiving infrastructure into the 21st century, so everyone can age and care with dignity. She talked to us about what she's hoping for as Congress continues discussing the proposed care infrastructure plan, and about her own caregiving journey. I, you know, at 27, was really just starting my career. I had my first kind of grown-up job, if you will, and I was really excited. So I had this trajectory for my life that did not include my mother being diagnosed with dementia and also did not include me being a caregiver for her. There were a lot of challenges. Primarily, I was concerned about what the gaps in my employment would say uh, to future employers. Uh, We know that women, particularly women of color, experience gaps not only in income uh, equality, but in job opportunities. And so I was acutely aware of the consequence of being off of the job market, being unemployed for really any length of time. In addition, I also was concerned about uh, just building my financial future and, you know, building credit and building, you know, did I want to, you know, considering whether I wanted to purchase a home someday, uh, you know, thinking about just what my own financial future would look like, uh, you know, I was not contributing to a 401k, um, all of these things, particularly as my caregiving role progressed. And, you know, I think when I first began, I figured somehow that maybe this would be a three-month responsibility, and it just continued. And uh, here we are eight years later. And so uh, I, I think I miscalculated the uh, amount of commitment and the longevity of my role. I 100% felt like trying to figure these things out was on my shoulders, primarily because the resources that I found we're not really set up for people in my set of circumstances that are very unique. I began writing about my experience as a caregiver, particularly as a woman of color, uh, particularly as a millennial. And while at the blog Her Conference, the largest conference for women in digital media, oddly enough, there is a breakout session on caregiving. While I was at that breakout session, I 
shared a bit of my own story. Uh, and that is when a representative from Caring Across Generations then approached me um, and, and shared her business card and said, you know, listen, there's an organization who is doing a tremendous amount of work around caregiving, advocacy, uh, policy, uh, and really empowering family caregivers uh, through their work. It's called Caring Across Generations. I'm going to put you in touch with one of my colleagues and you know, would love for you to, to talk with us. Uh, at that point, I started volunteering and uh, I, I wrote some pieces for their blog. And as I continued to engage with the organization, uh, they unveiled their first uh, fellowship cohort, uh, Care Fellows Program, and uh, it was selected and it was a phenomenal experience. It was more than just getting together to kind of compare compare circumstances because it's that's can be very difficult to do, but it's really saying, okay, you've been put in this really impossible position of being a family caregiver with little to no support, but what can we do to make a difference? And that's what I felt was so empowering is that for so long you do feel not only isolated, but hopeless because there's there seems to be no change in sight. However, being engaged with Caring Across Generations really enabled me to take action from a policy standpoint, to really voice what I would need from our systems that we have in place, from our lawmakers, from our policymakers, to help improve my mother's quality of life. And that's something that's so meaningful for so many people when you feel like there's no option and there's very little that you can do well here's something you can do you can contact your members of congress you can contact your senators you can, you can use your voice in storytelling you can interact and engage with the media in a way that is intentional and meaningful i was recently hired um, by caring cross generations as the constituency organizer and what that means is that i have the privilege every day of uh, speaking with family caregivers people with disabilities, older adults, and allies to these communities about what the experience is like and what we can do uh, together collectively to create a uh, care infrastructure that is equitable, affordable, and accessible to all. You know, we are familiar with the American Jobs Plan that uh, President Biden is, is looking to pass. And and I'm really, I'm really hopeful. You know, I would love to see the people who I speak with every day, I would love to see folks like them, uh, the parents and the the adult children and the people with disabilities, uh, the, the healthcare professionals, really in a position where they are able to experience a quality of life uh, that's not dependent upon factors that are just beyond their control. I would love to see communities that are able to support people as they age. I would love to see people really be able to to live successfully and comfortably in their own homes. These are things that I think we take for granted or we don't always consider until it's too late. And so making sure that we have the systems and the programs and the funding in place now, particularly as our baby boomer generation continues to age, making sure that the infrastructure that we have in place is strong enough, is robust enough to support them and that it's sustainable so that future generations can continue to benefit from those same systems over time.
I try not to lead with, uh, with the idea that it might not work. We understand, obviously, that anytime there are you know, multiple voices that are going to be weighing in on any decision, that it can go any number of ways. So, you know, we certainly are not naive to that. Uh, however, we also understand that, you know, if you give up and if you kind of call it a day, then there's absolutely no hope of progress. There's no hope of change. And so I personally will never stop fighting. And also because of the challenges that I mentioned earlier about just my own security in the future and beyond financial security. Also, you know, I'm an only child. Uh, I am not in a, in a relationship or, you know, and I'm not married and I don't have any children of my own. And so when I do look at my own future, I wonder, you know, if I develop dementia or uh, encounter some other health challenges or just general aging begins to take its toll, what options do I have? You know, if I'm no longer able to care for myself, who in my life can I call on uh, to step in to, to assist me with that, but also what programs are available. And so I look at my own well-being as well, the well-being of my peers. And I, I refuse to concede to the idea that, that changes can't be made. That was Aisha Adkins, a caregiver and constituency organizer at Caring Across Generations. Last year, Caring Across Generations and their director, Ai-jen Poo, talked with the American Prospect, a progressive political and public policy magazine, for a special issue about universal family care. David Dayan is the executive editor of the American Prospect, and he talked with us about what Biden's care infrastructure plan entails and what might get in its way. So the Prospect has been around for 30 years. We cover U.S. public policy at home and abroad. Uh, and have done significant work in, in a whole bunch of issue areas over the years. Uh, in January 2020, even before the pandemic, I, I had the opportunity to talk with Ai-jen Poo and some of her associates about her idea for a universal family care program uh, that would fund both early childhood education uh, and, and care, paid family medical leave, and long-term services and supports. And I just, it just occurred to me when we were talking about this that this was the big missing gap in the social safety net. I mean, families really struggle with the high costs. Uh, workers in these industries really struggle with the low pay. So you have this really strange dichotomy where uh, nobody can afford it and no one can live off it. And there's just a, the system isn't completely fragmented. And, and I just thought it was really important to elevate this issue. And concurrent with that, we had the pandemic, which just exposed these issues even more. And uh, Joe Biden's candidacy, which was a bit pioneering in the sense that it really foregrounded care work as an important value and something that uh, needed to be uh, sustained and, and, and given dignity. So we put together a, an 80 page issue uh, about this topic, a special issue uh, that looked at the issue in, in two ways. One, sort of what the state of family care is right now. And then two, what are the ways that could, it could be alleviated? And I, I'm completely proud of that issue. Uh, it's been important to me 
that we continue to cover these topics. Obviously, it's a big part of uh, Joe Biden's infrastructure plan, the human infrastructure side of it. And uh, it's something we're going to keep covering. I mean, it's, it's strange for a number of reasons. Uh, uh, the, the biggest being that elder care is somehow separated in a different bill than all of the other American families plan uh, 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 bits that, that presumably elder care is an important family issue, but for some reason it's in the jobs plan. So the first piece is that there's $400 billion. This largely goes to improving work around elder caregiving, both to make it more affordable for people, but also uh, to make those jobs good jobs, good paying jobs that uh, don't require individuals in those, in those industries to work multiple different jobs. So that's, that's sort of the big elder care piece. And then if you shift over to the American Family Plan, you have two parts. There's, there's a, a child care element that, that really goes through some of the existing ways in which we help fund childcare, block grants and that, and, and it funds them at a, at a higher level. It says that lower income families would not have to pay more than 7% of their income on childcare. Uh, presumably that would slide up for higher, you know, people above that particular f- threshold. It also uh, supports facilities and, 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 and caregivers, uh, most of whom are, are small family businesses. And then there's the paid family and medical leave piece. You know, all of this is very broad strokes, but uh, uh, that is a component of it as well. So, I mean, if you put that all together, it is notable in that it, it would provide a, a range of support for family care from cradle to the grave. I mean, it, it's, you're talking about childcare, you're talking about paid leave when you're you know, in your working life and you're talking about elder care. That's sort of the overarching mission, whether the specific plan that Biden has come up with would succeed. I mean, I think the devil's in the details, but I do think that, that in general, it's looking to make it more affordable for families, uh, more livable for the workers and uh, give people that choice to age in place or age in a facility. The Republicans are looking at this as, nope, infrastructure is just roads and bridges and maybe broadband. Uh, and they're, they're passing back and forth deal sheets on that. So uh, the Republicans give something and then uh, the White House gives a counteroffer. Um, the, the, the sort of framework for this is that, okay, Democrats and Republicans might be able to get together on a hard infrastructure bill that covers these sort of roads, bridges, highways, traditional infrastructure topics, and they pass that through regular order. And then Democrats go back and through the budget reconciliation process, which only requires 50 votes, so only Democrats, they pass everything else. And that would include the elder care piece of this and all of the parts of the American Families Plan. So that's kind of the, the ideal here uh, uh, that you hear about. But I, I have questions about whether either side of that would work. First of all, I wonder why Republicans would willingly enter in to this construct. If they're not interested in, in family care as a topic, why would they facilitate it? by uh, passing, you know, getting other stuff out of the way and allowing a second bill to be made. Uh, the second is there are, uh, uh, there's a question of revenue. So uh, how, uh, I don't like saying how things are going to be paid for, because that's actually not how things work. But, uh, but it's the way that it's been set up is that Joe Biden has said he wants these, uh, these spending plans offset by revenue. 
And Republicans don't want to raise taxes on the wealthy. They don't want to raise taxes on corporations. They don't want to use existing funds from the coronavirus relief programs, which Democrats don't want to do. Democrats want to fund the IRS to actually engage in better tax collection. Republicans don't really want to do that. So I don't see how these two sides get together on that. And furthermore, many Democrats have resisted Biden's idea. They quibble with specific tax increases. They quibble with specific uh, corporate tax uh, rates and things like that. And if Biden is out there saying every dime of this must be paid for, and Democrats are saying, well, we want to pay for it, but we don't want to do this, this, and this, then something's going to have to be cut. I mean, you just, if there's $3 trillion in spending and $3 trillion in tax revenue, and Democrats whittle that down to $2 trillion in tax revenue, then there's a trillion in spending that's going to go away. And my fear is that because this is so novel, that family care is really uh, being funded at a high level, kind of, uh, you know, I mean, we have little minor things, but for the first time in a comprehensive way, if you don't have that, uh, uh, if you don't have the money, what's the first thing that's going to be on the chopping block? And so uh, I think it's a major moment to see what Biden is interested in doing, to see what the Democrats are interested in doing, and if they really uh, care, to coin a phrase, about family care. I'm not a Republican strategist, and uh, I'm not going to play the game of trying to get into their heads. But what I know is that the very first thing that they targeted on this infrastructure package was saying that childcare isn't an infrastructure, and paid leave isn't infrastructure, and long-term care isn't infrastructure. So, I mean, do the math. Like that was the very first thing that they 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 rallied against, and and they think it's they must think it's good politics. I don't think it is. I think that the, the politics are pretty clear here that there are hundreds of millions of families uh, that that are affected by this. Uh, Unless you are a fully sentient being when you're born, you're going to need some care. And at the end of your life, it's very likely that you're going to need some care and and your family is going to have to figure out a way to manage that. So um, I think this is an issue that the entire public can rally around. Um, we, we, We have seen the beginnings, the stirrings of a movement on this, but I think it does need to get bigger. That was David Dayen, executive editor of The American Prospect. We also asked Terry Fulmer for her perspective on the CARE infrastructure plan. She is the president of the John A. Hartford Foundation, which is dedicated to improving the care of older adults. And she's been part of the movement advocating for increased support and resources for family caregivers for some time. I think caregivers were almost an invisible part of the fabric prior to COVID. It was going on, Uh, family members were doubling down, doing complex care, but it hadn't really hit the front pages like it has now and like we're seeing in uh, some of the administration's focus on the care economy. And and so I think that that whole link between childcare, elder care has helped elevate the issue. And I think that what we're learning is that caregiving is is one point of the Biden's American Jobs Infrastructure Plan. So you have the American Rescue Plan, and then the centerpiece of the bill was a one-time direct payment of up to fourteen hundred for four hundred for hundreds of millions of Americans, along with that three hundred dollar federal supplement to unemployment benefits, which has helped 
family caregivers who face financial strain. And then the American Jobs Plan, that $2.3 trillion, who knows what number it'll be, which is proposed, um, has this infrastructure plan, which is controversial because th people think of hard infrastructure, uh, bridges, railroads. But then I've heard the term soft infrastructure, like family caregiving. As a woman, as a full-time working mother who raised three kids, I never thought of uh, caregiving as soft. I think that it's reasonable for people to worry about the total price tags, but this has been going on a long time, and it's time to really ask ourselves, what is our commitment to supporting family caregivers in this country? So I think that we know it's the most transformational and polarizing part of the plan for home or community-based care for older people with disabilities. Um, but here the idea is to expand the definition of infrastructure. So let's see how that evolves. I think that very wise people are engaged in reaching across the aisle. And I think that Senator Collins is a person who uh, is on the Senate Committee on Aging for many years and is very aware of this issue. And I think she'll be a real champion. And Certainly you see on the Democratic side a lot of champions for this work because it, it's, it is so imperative for those who have the least money in our economy to keep their work going. We know that nursing assistants in skilled nursing facilities often have two or three jobs and they go from facility to facility in order to make sure that they can uh, earn the wage that they need. And the other thing, uh, when we think about the way that these dollars will be spent, is that it's really an infusion into a, a Medicaid program as well. So I think that there is work to be done, but I think if we get the construct right, that is we need to support family caregivers, we need to pay a living wage for these caregivers. Most of them do not even have paid time off, and they don't have benefits. So I think that we're starting from a very low point and anything this administration can do to support family caregivers, paid and unpaid, is going to be very, very important. Every single person I know can tell you a story about their mother, their grandmother, their aunt. Everybody has not only one but multiple stories about a problem they saw with the system where support for family caregivers could have really made a substantial difference. So, you know, there. I think we just have to keep raising the bar on what our expectations are. You know, the Raise Family Caregivers Act is another example of a big law that, that has passed that stands for Recognize, Assist, Include, Support, and Engage. And that law directs U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services to develop a national family caregiving strategy, which will be a game changer when that happens. So our foundation has funded resources and dissemination centers, um, as, and really we try to do everything we can. The, the Dissemination Center is a policy program and research hub, and the RAISE Act Council, which includes experts and family caregivers, will deliver a report to Congress this year, and it's in clearance right now. So we'll learn a lot about that, but the ability, think about it, recognize, assist, include, support, and engage family caregivers. That is just so, so important for the well-being of those individuals, for them to give the care that they really need to be able to deliver with support. So a full strategy is supposed to be developed by 2022. One of the things about any of the programmatic areas is it takes time. Uh, I, and I'll give you an example. My, I'm a nurse 
and I was in higher education and my research agenda was on studying elder abuse and neglect. And I did that for 30 years. And it's, you have to stay the course. Our foundation will stay the course because uh, just when you think you've whack-a-mold something into the right place, you have to try harder. So we're watching, we will stay the course, we're gonna stay with it, we wanna see appropriate legislation, and also we're doubling down on diverse family caregiving issues. I think that making sure that we have equitable systems and that we can do the right thing for family caregivers, whether they're rich or poor, regardless of the color of their skin or the location of where their parents were born. I think that if you have concerns about the current state of family caregiving for your own family or for people you know, that it's important to speak up. I think you need to know the agendas of the people you vote for in this country so that you can uh, choose a person who can really help you move that forward. And I think that talking to your local assembly people uh, so that, you know, who's in your neighborhood, who has the ability to ha get the ear of your mayor, your governor, your congressperson, so that you can make sure that your voice is being heard. I realize that that sounds like it's pie in the sky, but it really isn't. The bottom line is that right now there's a lot of polarization and we need to focus on shared values, be advocates, and look to what the states and nonprofits and private sectors can do during this time where um, there seems to be a lot of noise in the system. That was Terry Fulmer, president of the John A. Hartford Foundation. Invite us all to speak up and stay patient, a message that was echoed by Aisha Adkins. As an activist, I, I keep the memory of, of those who came before me and, and their hope and their optimism because it's because of them and their continued fight and their persistence and their perseverance that I'm where I am. And, and my hope is that with that same commitment, we can see changes. You know, it certainly won't happen overnight. It may be incremental, but change can happen. And I'm, I'm, I fully believe in that and I'm fully committed to that. Thank you to all of our guests for sharing your stories, expertise, and insights. You can learn more about Aisha and all her work at AishaAdkins.com. If you're curious to read the American Prospect special issue on universal family care, you can find that at prospect.org forward slash family care. And to find out more about the John A. Hartford Foundation, please visit johnahartford.org. Support for the Stanford Center on Longevity comes from the Annenberg Foundation, dedicated to addressing the critical issues of our time through innovation, community, compassion, and communication. Carrie Thompson and Ava Ahmadbegi are the producers of When I'm 64. Please like us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can find out more about us by checking out our website, longevity.stanford.edu. You've been listening to When I'm 64, the podcast for caregivers. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Ken Stern.